It's time for episode 28 of the Clockwise Podcast from your pals at IDG, recorded March 12th, 2014. Clockwise, four guests, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, a podcast that normally starts with a very clever, punny opening line. Bravo. We didn't do that this time. I'm Jason Snell, your co-host. Dan Morin. Hi. Hello, co-host. I'm just saying if I had started this episode, I would have had a witty line. So, uh, sitting next to me, virtually, in our little uh, internet-based roundtable, is Macworld's very own Serenity Caldwell. Hello. Hi, Jason. Hi, Dan. To my left is PC World's Brad Charcos. Hi, Brad. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Welcome back. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my third or fourth time now. Yeah, you're a veteran. Anyway, uh, let's explain a little bit about what the show does in less than 30 minutes, because your time is very valuable. We will talk about four tech topics. Each of us has brought a topic that we think is worth discussing a little bit uh, for this week, and uh, we'll all talk about them in turn. And then at the end, if we've got a little extra time, we'll talk about something that is off topic. Uh, So because I am uh, the person who screwed up the opening line, I will go first. And here's my topic. I have been using um, Beats Music for the last month, and it's a music subscription service. It's on my iPhone, and it's in a little web browser on my computer. And I've been resistant to music subscription services over the years. I've had Rhapsody for a while. I had a demo account, and I never used it. And I'm trying to use it. And I'm starting to see some of the appeal of these music subscription services rather than just buying uh, music a la carte from iTunes or Amazon MP3. Um I and I'll tell at the end I'll tell a little bit about how I'm approaching it but I'm curious for you guys do you use a music subscription service and if you if you do why and what one and uh, if you don't why not I do I started using Pandora a couple years back um, when I worked at a, a job before MacWorld uh, where I folded T-shirts a lot of the day so we constantly had either um, Pandora stations or podcasts on. Uh, and I got kind of uh, used to and addicted to listening to music that uh, that fu- that flowed well. And and you know, if I wanted, if I was in the mood for some electronica or something like that, I could create an electronica station, and that was really neat. Um, but like you, I've actually started using Beats. Um, I haven't given up my Pandora subscription yet. Uh, I still use it for musicals. Uh, but I'm really, really enjoying Beats music uh, and the. Uh, the curation aspect, the custom playlists. I've been finding yeah. a lot of good music that I didn't, I had never heard of before. Uh, I I don't subscribe to them, but I do use Spotify from time to time, especially since they, um, you know, recently opened up some of what's available for free. Um, and mainly for me, I, I tend to listen to my own iTunes library, but, uh, you know, every once in a while I'll hear a new song or get a song stuck in my head or something and think, well, I don't necessarily want to buy that song but i I do kind of want to listen to it or see you know what else should i buy this album um and while i like you know that itunes has the ability to preview an entire album it's much more uh effective to go onto spotify and just listen to an album and uh, i don't really mind the ads or anything like that so i kind of jump back and forth i still buy a lot of music via itunes predominantly um, but I like the idea of having access to music, especially when I'm not sure whether or not it's something that I want to buy. You know, it starts to feel a little bit more like, hey, Netflix is great because I want to li- I want to watch this movie. I don't necessarily want to own this movie uh, or I'm not sure if it's worth paying for. Um, but, you know, hey, I've got Netflix already, so I, I have paid for it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think 
I've come around a bit since, you know, the the early 2000s when a music subscription service was very different and much more restrictive about how you could use that music. And I think with the advent of smartphones and the fact that we're all connected to the internet all the time, it's a lot easier to use a service like uh, Spotify or Beats or what have you. So, uh, yeah, I think that maybe we're, we're moving more and more in that direction, I guess. I telecommute so i sit here by myself and i listen to music for eight to ten hours a day Mm. and streaming music has been an absolute godsend i've been uh using it since you know pandora came around way back when although i i found that my obsessive thumbs up and thumbs downing of the songs quickly led to uh playlists that have like three songs on them and that's it (laughs) um (laughs) so uh for the past year or so, I've been subscribing to Spotify, and I've been very, very happy with it. And I sit here, and I listen to Spotify all day, and it's augmented by I have like 60 gigs of music on my hard drive, and between the two of them, I couldn't be happier. I think streaming music is great. I think it's wonderful, and I recommend Spotify to anybody who asks. I actually recommend paying for it, too, because 8 bucks a month to uh, get rid of the ads and be able to use it on your phone is a wonderful benefit for not very much price. I think now I understand as somebody who really doesn't like the idea of renting music and if you stop paying, all your music goes away. I still think there is a place in my life and uh, for, for a subscription service. And uh, to Ren's point, the fact that what intrigues me about Beats is that they've come at it from this curation angle where they've hired a lot of really smart people who know music to build playlists. The problem I have with Beats is that its interface isn't great right now. I think you can't add... I want a queue that I can throw songs into or throw playlists into and have them work in succession. Uh, building playlists should be easier. Their web app is not very good. Um, so they've got, it's a new service, although I think it's based on Mog. So they've got, they've got some room to grow, but I've been really enjoying that experience and I love the playlist. All right. That was good. Ren, it's your turn. Oh, good. So the topic I wanted to talk about today, um, is iOS 7.1 came out this week. Um, and with it, it added some new features to the accessibility pane, um, that allow you to tweak even more visual settings in iOS 7. So when iOS 7 first came out last September, there was a lot of controversy about the new look. It was very flattened. There were a lot of crazy animations and people were complaining about getting nauseous. Um, So partially in response, Apple started uh, putting in more settings, uh, more visual settings in the accessibility section to do things like bold text for people who didn't like the skinnier Helvetica or in this most recent update in 7.1, they've added button shapes. They've added more to the increased contrast contrast menu. Um, They've added on-off labels. Reduce motion now makes everything standard cross-dissolves. And I was curious what you guys think. Um, Do you think this is all, you know, all well and good in the name of accessibility? Or do you think they're they're actually sort of hedging and basically giving users a chance to almost design your own OS to a certain extent? Not, not, you know, all the way, but... uh, but it, it really does seem like they're giving quite a putting quite a bit of visual uh, choice in the hands of the users, whereas before Apple hasn't really been known to do that. It's a, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we, this isn't the first time we've seen Apple dial back on on big interface changes. Um, and very early on, in I think uh, ten point five on the Mac, there was this the translucent menu bar, um, which they later added a preference for, so you could turn on and off. Um, and, you know, that was because there had been a lot of criticism of this translucent menu bar. And so it, I mean, it's generally the exception rather than the rule uh, as far as Apple goes. But it does certainly feel like in this case, there's a lot of, well, iOS 7 was such a big jump 
uh, in terms of look and feel from iOS 6 that they really, you know, they took a lot of criticism from it. That said, some of the things are, are very clearly accessibility things. Uh, they, they have this a feature that adds on and off labels to the switches for those who are colorblind. They have issues with things with reducing uh, transparency and motion sickness, uh, um, transparency and motion effects and things like that to sort of uh, make things easier to read, bolder text, et cetera. And I think a lot of those fall into a truly you know, accessibility category for people who want to use phones. And they're, they're generally pretty good about that. But, but things like the button labels, like it does seem like a little bit too much uh, catering to the backlash. And more to the point, the button labels are hideous. Um, so I can, they are, they're just, they're ugly. They're really ugly. I can't understand, you know, it feels a little bit like, I think several people have said like, you want button labels? Fine. Yeah, let Here them you go. have button labels. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I had, I turned it on for about a minute and was like, ah, and had to go turn them off again. Um, and it, it's weird because you can think of other ways they could have done that. That would have been more in keeping with the aesthetic that they put out there. So maybe that's deliberate. I don't know. Um, but it is a little weird. It's not, you know, again, it's not something that's outside of the realm of possibility for Apple, but it is more on the unusual side. So, yeah, I, maybe they just aren't feeling quite as confident about this as they, they have in the past. I think personally that it's great for if there is such a drastic change as iOS 7 was from previous iterations. I think it's great for them to tuck these different options into a back end of the operating system. Uh, for users who are dissatisfied with them to tinker with if they like. Again, I know that's not Apple, Apple's typical uh, modus operandi, but as a Windows and Android guy, I think it's great. And the fact that they tuck these, you know, far down into the settings menu um, is a big deal because most studies say that, you know, like 99% of people just leave the default settings alone when you pick up a device. So... The vast majority of people using iOS 7 are still going to stick with Apple's vision what it is, but I think it's nice of them to kind of blunt the blow for power users by tucking all this stuff into a little sub-menu. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think um, I like this. I think it's good. I, I agree with Dan. Maybe some of the options do feel like, fine, all right. But you know what they're doing is saying, look, we have a default that we think is the right way to do it. And if you're really bugged by it, there is a setting you can go and you can adjust to make yourself happier. And, and and some of that is going to be aesthetic and some of that is functional. Like when I was setting up, I upgraded my mom's iPhone to iOS 7 when I was visiting her a couple weeks ago. And one of the nice things about iOS 7 is that there's a uh, you can change the default text size. And you can say increase contrast and you can say bold text and you can you can basically truly it's truly accessibility because my my mom is in her 70s and her eyesight isn't great and i can switch those uh, switches and she gets a better iphone experience without it being something that i need because i my eyes are not that bad yet they're rapidly going there so i i, I like it i think that um i think that this is apple's way to say you you know, the, Apple's version of the Android or Windows sort of like make it any way you want it is we make it the way we want it. And then we've got some things hidden away that you can flip to make it a little more like what you want. I think that's not a bad compromise rather than them saying take it or leave it without them saying it's a free for all. So I'm I'm OK with it. I, I, I like to see it and I'd like them to do, um, you know, more of that, but to keep it to, to not give up their vision of, of, of what they want. Just make it, you know just have some places you can go if you really need it as a last resort. 
Yeah, absolutely. I uh, my only quibble with it, I think, is that it's hidden away in accessibility uh, and not like there is not a separate section for the like an interface section. Yeah, like like interface. Well, like the majority of these, as Dan uh, said, fit absolutely into the accessibility category. Like larger text makes perfect sense. Um, contrast and reducing motion makes perfect sense. Um, and even on off labels, you know, for colorblind folks, uh, but like button shapes. Bolded text. Um, there's a there's a new feature that's actually hidden in the wallpaper section, not the accessibility right. section, um, that just reduces the parallax motion of the wallpaper, but not the uh, motion uh, for the rest of the system. So it's kind of scattershot. It's the <laughs> pick and choose aspect that kind of bothers me. Yeah. Though. Like, why mm. these things and not other things? If you're going to let people tweak things, then, you know, maybe let them tweak other things <laughs> or fewer things. I don't know. It seems kind of it seems kind of like I agree. The scattershot. Exactly. Well, Dan, what's your topic? Since I don't want to talk too much about iOS 7 and My topic is iOS 7. Point, no. Uh, my, <laughs> no! <laughs> no! Uh, sort of building off uh, Jason's topic, talking about music. Um, music, Digital music's come a long way in the last decade or so, and we've seen a lot. Um, you know, Steve Jobs famously said when they introduced the iTunes store that they, their goal was to compete with piracy. And it really does seem as though digital music has done that to this. You know, it's not eradicated piracy because that's impossible, but it's made an alternative that people are willing to pay for and has really, you know, done a good job of getting artists and the, all the other people paid for their work. So that's great. Now, movies, I think, on the other hand, have still been movies and television have been having more of an uphill climb um, because in some ways they didn't, you know, they saw what happened to the music industry and didn't necessarily feel like that was the best way for things to go. So this this morning I saw a piece on this new app called Popcorn Time, um, which is basically an app that you open it up and it's got like a whole bunch of movie like it's sort of like using like a Plex or a media center or an Apple TV or something like that. Just gives you a bunch of movies. You select a movie, you hit play, movie starts playing. Now, on the back end, it's all based on torrenting movies. So this is illegal, um, but it made it really easy and user-friendly to the point where uh, torrents still have been kind of a techie thing where you have to like figure it out and dive around. This sort of made it friendly. Um, and so it seems to me that the, the movie industry is still having trouble of getting to this point where we want to make things so easy um, that we're going to compete with piracy by providing an alternative that is not as restrictive and not as much of a pain. Um, you end up with things like ultraviolet and all these other sort of digital copies and all this stuff. So my question for you guys is, Has does the movie and TV industry need to do more to compete with piracy by providing better alternatives? Um, Brad, what do you think? As a cord cutter, I have a lot of experience with all of the shifting dynamics of... Uh, you know, digital television, digital movies. And while it's still not quite where I'd like to see it, I can't go get Game of Thrones the next day very easily. Uh, unless you're, you know, into iTunes or whatnot. Um, I think that in general, TV and movies are actually doing a good job of moving forward and embracing the digital era. Uh, popcorn time, this torrenting thing, is pretty interesting. It's pretty cool. It's a really slick way to watch movies via torrent, which of course is illegal. But as cool and slick as it is, I still don't think it's going to have a huge amount of adoption because there are so many affordable ways to get the movies that you want to watch now. You can go to Netflix, 8 bucks a month. You can go to Hulu, 8 bucks a month. You can go to iTunes. You can go to Amazon. And there's all these different options out there. And piracy is still more of a problem for movies and TVs than it is for music. But I think... 
that as slick as this is, you'd still have to be out there actively looking for it rather than something that would just take the world by storm because there's no viable alternatives out there. This is, I mean, this is obviously a frustration that that music has figured this out, like you said, and that, but with video, we're still crippled by DRM and everything's really complicated and it's getting worse. I got an email from Disney saying, hey, you, uh, you get uh, Disney access something or other. And I thought, oh, geez, is Disney now going to be doing its own ultraviolet? And I, you know, most of my stuff's in iTunes. I'd really prefer it there. Uh, I don't love that it's DRM'd. I still buy some Blu-rays every now and then, only because then I can I can actually rip those and control them. Although having stuff in the cloud in iTunes is really convenient. It's a mess, and I I don't know how it's going to get better. I wanted to say, um, you know, what I would really like too is for them to come up with some nice. Uh, alternatives to BitTorrent for people who are paying customers. And I know that sounds strange, but hear me out. Um, I have DVDs of a billion TV shows in the little uh, little drawer underneath my TV. And I was realizing that if I want to watch those anymore, um, I can sit for hours and rip them all using Handbrake. And I would really like an iTunes match, essentially, for video content because you know when i when i look at those babylon 5 discs and i want to watch the show again um i start to think i should just get the torrent (laughs) why would i rip them myself i should just get the torrent i'm not going to buy them again on itunes that's ridiculous but i own them um and so that's something that i would really like to see is i i would i would really like some forward-thinking studio to say you know what um, if you, if you got this DVD, even if it was a paid service like iTunes match, where you would say, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a one-time fee or I'm going to give you an annual fee and I'm going to stick my DVDs in a drive and you're going to verify that it's a real DVD and you're going to give me the movie. I would love something like that. I, I'm happy to give them a little money for it, but I'm not going to rebuy everything I bought on DVD just so that I can get it again, uh, in digital. So for that BitTorrent is actually fantastic and that's too bad. So that, that's what I want to see. I am very, very frustrated as somebody who really, you know, I enjoy watching a lot of movies. And there was a while where I was watching two or three movies a day when I had an active Netflix subscription. Um, was that why I you were am... folding T-shirts? Yes. Actually, I watched all of I watched yeah. all of Doctor it's right now, who Jason. Folding it's pretty t-shirts. much every day right now. I with the with the very first iPad, you know, plopping up. But um, yeah, I mean, there's so much right now that the television and the movies industry could do to simplify this whole, you know, the 30 day waiting period to watch new television for some things on Hulu. Um, there are so many weird restrictions and so many half hearted attempts at putting content together that it really does feel like pre iTunes land for uh, for music. Uh, where there's there's got to be a better way, and I'm really hoping that either a media company sort of comes to its senses. Like if HBO got basically said, you know what, we're going to do a crazy experiment and offer maybe two of our shows or offer brand new shows just through this HBO subscription or like back orders of certain shows. So we're not going to try and piss off the or sorry, we're not going to try and. Uh, and make the other uh, the content companies mad, uh, but we're 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 tired of you know just being a, a cable subscription company. We want to we want to try and and uh, see what happens if we open up our our gates to the online community for like ten dollars a month. Um, it just needs one one content company to do something different, and I think the the rest will fall. 
Yeah, uh, the thing that interested me about Popcorn Time was that one of the things they were, you know, hawking is the fact that they've got the movies that you can't get anywhere else because of release windows, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're like, oh, if you want to see those Oscar nominees that, you know, aren't on video yet, um, well, we've got them here because you can get anything, right? And that's that's the biggest problem with a lot of these movie services is that Netflix is great, but there's a lot of stuff they don't get because of all these complicated release windows and things like that or rights. International and, deals, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, like, there's, you know, the a lot of the companies don't want to put their latest and greatest movies on Netflix because they feel like that's taking money away from people who will pay for those, right? So, uh, you know, I think they what's got to come first is the embracing, you know, the idea that not everybody's running out and buying the latest copies of uh, of your your new hit movie when it comes out on video anymore. That's just it's just not the model, um, you know. And they've put all we've put all the uh, video rental chains out of business. So online's pretty much the only option left. Um, well, thanks guys, I appreciate that, Brad. I think you have a topic for us. I do, and it's uh, Windows Eight. So uh, when Windows Eight came out, obviously there's this huge backlash about it because it just tossed everything you know about Windows out the window to have this lifestyle tablet friendly interface, and uh, there was a huge backlash. And PC sales have somewhat plummeted, you know, possibly due to tablets, possibly due to hardware lasting longer, possibly due to that very interface change. And since then, Microsoft's been uh, backing it off. Uh, the Windows eight point one update last October. Gave you the option to boot uh, the desktop and amongst other things. And Microsoft is pushing out an update for the Windows 8.1 update next month sometime. Uh, and they accidentally leaked a version of it earlier this week. Um, I managed to get a hold of that and play around with it. And it actually has a lot of concessions for desktop users. For example, it adds the taskbar to the Metro interface. It adds Metro apps to the taskbar, whereas before they were desktop programs alone. Um, when you're playing around in the Metro interface, right-clicking will bring up a mouse menu now rather than a finger-friendly menu. And all this stuff is when you're using a device with a keyboard and mouse. Um, to me, it seems like a pretty interesting way to uh, appease some of these disgruntled desktop users who've been complaining vocally about this. But at the same time, it seems to introduce some new problems. For example, uh, bringing the taskbar up in Metro Apps, it covers some of the interface elements of Metro Apps because Metro Apps were not designed for the taskbar. Um, I was wondering, do you think walking back on the vision or tweaking the vision is a good thing for Windows 8? Do you think Microsoft should continue with uh, moving towards the future? I'm just wondering what you think is the happy medium here. Well, that's a... That's a great question. I I don't know. I love the stuff that Microsoft has been doing um, with with Metro uh, or whatever they call it now, modern. Um, but I also get that uh, their strength is their install base and their install base is resistant to change. And unlike Apple, which seems to be content to just change things and then throw a couple of uh, bones in a accessibility slider, <laughs> uh, Microsoft... Uh, is hearing from angry customers who buy thousands of copies of of Windows and uh, wants to make things right. So I get I get what they're doing for their customers. At the same time, I find it disappointing because they're trying to um, do some new things and people are resistant to change. And if you just uh, always fall back on the old ways, there will never be any change. That said, I'm not entirely convinced that the Metro look and feel 
being mashed up on top of Windows standard is a good idea. And I, you know, I, I remember being really disappointed when I saw the first demo of what they were going to do with Windows 8, and it was this really exciting touch interface, and then below it was just standard Windows. I kind of feel like maybe those products should be separate, and there should be, you know, uh, you know, desktop dominant devices that can maybe run Metro and some Metro dominant devices that can maybe run windows and have the mix less. So I don't know. I, I, Microsoft knows its business and uh, I think this is probably a good move for its business, but I think it's bad for innovation. And I think it's unfortunate because a lot of the stuff that Microsoft is doing uh, trying to drag their users forward is good. Yeah, I agree with you, Jason. Um, I mean, there's a reason, comparing it to Apple again, there's a reason why OS X didn't immediately become iOS on the desktop and be like, let's let's try and do this same interface over all of our platforms. Um, you need a certain – you need certain kind of tools on the desktop and you need certain kind of tools for touch interfaces. Um, and when you're dealing with laptops that can convert between touch interface to desktop, you're going to run into those sort of in-between problems. Unfortunately, I think that uh, Microsoft's current solution is – again, like either try and go all the way one way, realize it's not working, and then make this weird hybrid that's not really great for the tablet users and not really great for the people who want to use a traditional mouse and keyboard either. So it's, I mean, it's possible that they may even need to look at a third version if they're really, if they're really gung-ho about like the desktop should be touch interactive, but also be able to work in the standard mouse and keyboard formation. Uh, they're Maybe they need to take some more uh, some more thought at how to better package that in a way that will appeal to everyone, or maybe concess- concede that you know there's a desktop and there's a and there's a there's a touch, but uh, we we can't quite mel- we don't quite have the tools to meld it together quite yet. And not knowing Microsoft as well as I know Apple, I can't say for sure what the correct answer is, but uh, but I don't necessarily know that this is it. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean. Like like Ren, I'm not a huge Microsoft expert. I haven't used Windows regularly in, in many years. Um, but I, I agree with Jason that I was kind of excited about the idea of this interface revamp when they first announced it. Um, and to draw the line back to the conversation we were having about iOS 7.1, um, you know, in some ways, I do wish they would kind of stick to their vision. Because the, the truth is that no, you know, change is often regarded as bad by people, right? Um, but if we all just sort of, you know, acceded to their demands and turned everything back the way it was before, then we never get anywhere. And so I kind of feel like it was bold of Microsoft to make the move to, you know, let's try something new. And that my feeling in the matter is maybe they didn't go far enough. Um, rather, you know, by trying to keep everything that was the legacy support around and providing that comfortable enclave for people to fall back into in case they didn't like the the new changes meant that no one, you know, there were a lot of people who weren't never going to give those a real try and it wasn't really going to get the experience and exposure it needed to get better. Um, so yeah, it's a little disappointing because it felt like, well, okay, Microsoft's trying something really new here and it's, it's interesting to see where that goes. But the idea that we're dialing back to where Windows has been for a really long time suggests to me that, you know, they've decided maybe that experiment hasn't panned out and they're just going to go back to what's safe and what works. And that may make them money uh, over, you know, the short and long and medium term. But I think over the long term, it kind of it means that they might be in more trouble because they're not necessarily going to try something that radical again. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. So there's three Mac users opinions about Windows 8. Brad. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, that that's our uh, that's our fourth topic. So we're almost out of time. But before we go, we like to have a little bonus question that's off topic. Here is the question Ooh. relating back to talking about entertainment and my initial question about music. I wanted to know what each of you is listening to lately. And I, I, I was going to say what album, but not everybody listens to albums anymore. They listen to songs. They listen to playlists. So I'm going to leave it a little more open ended. What what kind of stuff are you listening to lately, Serenity? Um, in specific, I, uh, I've been listening to Pumplemoose's latest single. They did a mashup of Farrell's um, Happy song and um, a couple of the songs on the, Daft, the latest Daft Punk album. Not only is the band great and the, the single and the, the audio is fantastic, but the video is also definitely worth watching. So that's what I've been jamming out to lately. Cool. Dan? Actually, the most recent soundtrack that I really loved was, which is a little bit on the old side, is the Django Unchained soundtrack, which is a more of a you know mix of pop songs and classic spaghetti western soundtracks. Oh. Fascinating album. Cool, cool. Brad, um, I've been kicking it 1990 style recently um, <laughs> with two different things. I have a massive seven or eight hour long West Coast Tupac era gangster rap playlist <laughs> I made on Spotify. <laughs> So I've been sitting here bobbing my head to that. And when I get sick of uh, Tupac and Biggie sparring, I've uh, been listening to Beck's old Midnight Vultures CD, wow. which is kind of like boys to men mm. mixed with acid, and it's incredibly <laughs> yeah. amazing. That's great. Wow. Um, so here, the, the three things I've been listening to most recently, um, Ren mentioned Daft Punk. I've been listening to Discovery, their album before Random Access Memories, which is super mm-hmm. crazy electronic, and I and I really like it. I've been listening, speaking of French bands with electronic influences, I've been listening to Bankrupt, which is the latest album by Phoenix, and uh, Dizzy Heights, which is the new album from Neil Finn, who's the singer-songwriter who was in Crowded House, which is my favorite band of all time. So that's what I've been listening to. And I believe by checking the clock on the wall... Dan, we're out of time. Oh, so sad. I don't even have a clock on my wall. Well, you're lucky that I do then. Serenity Caldwell, it was great having you back. Thanks for having me. Brad Charcos, thank you for being here. Anytime. So until next time, from all of us here at Clockwise, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock if you have one on your wall. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.